0: Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of February, pretty much, got leap, leap day, 29th coming through. But yeah, I'm just trying to get to March right now, so the sunset's coming through, but just need that weather. In the public enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. On the 5th M Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, have you had a good week in the circumstances? I've had a pretty decent week, can't complain actually, pretty decent week. Um, had the homie Ben from Ding and Digits come through uh, for London, uh, he's he's here for the next, uh, well, uh, a week, a, a week now, but he's been here for a week already, so um, he's supposed to be here for, uh, for obviously two weeks, and um, yeah, he's... Uh, is uh <laughs> I mean you could just gonna have to tune into D I T D in a couple of weeks to get the rest of his second week, but um yeah, it's a, it's a it's he's he's made it interesting for himself, that's for sure. Um but yeah, um it's been an interesting week. Um saw a few shows in the weekend, um saw City of God for the first time. It's taken me dunno why it's taken me this long, but finally got there, saw it in the BFI South Bank and uh yeah, great experience. I'm glad I I'm glad I took the time to actually, you know, watch it somewhere proper, and because um, a film of that nature deserves it. Um, I love the, I love the way, especially the story is structured. Um, the fact that obviously it's based on a true story is fascinating, but the structure of that story was just beautiful, absolutely amazing. Um, the script was great. Um, really into that. Really just uh, appeal to the screenwriter in me. Appeal to the photographer in me, if you know you know, if you've seen the film, you get what I mean, um, but yeah, man, really good stuff, really love that film, really enjoyed it, um, definitely worth the wait, um, yeah, saw a few, saw a few eyes at the South Bank Centre as well, um, and, uh, took a picture, took pictures of the majority of them, um, yeah, shout out to Doom Cannon, who asked me for photos, um, and I, I obviously gave them to him, right, <laughs> edited a little set, um, and uh, lash them to him, so he's he's happy with that. And uh, yeah, I probably should get in the habit of doing that, where I just um, you know tag the artist, and you know just if they want them, they can have them kind of thing. Because I don't actually do that. I should probably be more proactive on that. But anyway, it's been a good week. It's been a good week. Um, yeah, so just um, doing some work this week, hopefully, and um, yeah, just moving into March. Moving into March. That's, that's all I'm. That's all I'm thinking about. Just moving into March, and hopefully uh, some decent weather, but we have a show to do, we have a show to do, um, last week, if you didn't, uh, spin, uh, interview with Lambs, uh, really good interview, um, highly, uh, suggest you go give us a spin, and get into her music, um, she's literally only just beginning, in my mind, <coughs> excuse me, but yeah, we're here for the show, um, so what have we got, we have a... Uh, photography segment, two music segments, and we're going to start off with a sports segment. So, with that said, formalities before we begin, email, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes, as well as music for the show and podcasts under the 5EPN. And with that said, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where Danny Alves, footballer Danny Alves, is sentenced to four and a half years in jail over sexual assault. Uh, Shamima Begum loses appeal against removal of her British citizenship. Uh, the Russo Ukraine war enters its third year. Uh, Russia also returns the body of deceased opposition leader Alexei Navalny to his family. And lastly, don't know if you guys have seen this video, I honestly don't think you should. Um, is really graphic um, when it's uncensored. Uh, active uh, US Air Force member Aaron Bushnell uh, live streams self-immolation um, outside the Israeli Embassy in Washington in protest of. US complicity in Israel's genocide campaign. Now I feel like having to write a you know just a longer little bit for that because um, the media the media has really just um, not done well not done well at all in terms of covering the story. Um they don't give any of the reasons why he did it um onto their headline um and this is just headline culture gone wrong. They they just put, you know, activist member self-immolates outside Israeli embassy. No detail, no nothing. And even in some of the articles themselves, they don't actually say like, you know what he said. Um the dude was literally on Twitch and was saying, you know, who he is and why he's doing this he did it in an in ext- knowing knowing full well of sound body and mind of it being an extreme protest um this is not obviously the first time someone has done self immolation um if you don't know what self immolation is it's basically setting yourself on fire um and yeah nobody it's not the first time that somebody's done this um this has been a you know well documented extreme form of protest and um yeah, it's unfortunate that he felt the need to do that. Um, but here we are, you know, um, still looking for a ceasefire or or humanitarian pause, as the Tories want to call it. Like, don't like it fucking matters, just fucking do it. And like, it's just every day people keep dying, and you lot of bickering about wording it doesn't make sense to me. But this is where we're at, and this is where we're at in the world. But anyway, um, this is actually an incredibly light show in terms of tone. Um, I don't think, yeah, none of these articles have any, you know, deep, um, deep moments in it, apart from maybe the third. But you know, that's just, um, yeah, it's just, just, yeah, it's not as deep as you know, someone self-immolating. You know what I mean? So um, this is a pretty light, this is a pretty light episode, um, I feel, and uh, you know. I, f- I feel like I should do more of these, but, um, you know, just sometimes like get an eye call and you know, I usually just pick out the first four I want. Um, they really, you know, grab my attention. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're just uh, not positive and <laughs> um, require, you know, genuine talk. But here we are talking about the NBA All-Star Weekend. Once again, I actually talked about this, um, I think it was episode 65, if I remember correctly, um, as I was doing the full description for this episode. Um, episode sixty five, where I was talking about how the NBA All Star Weekend actually, you know, was improved and people liked it, and this is this is good because this is how we can we can finally progress in terms of that, and uh, you know, actually enjoy NBA All Star Weekend. But here we are, two weeks, pretty nearly two weeks out of um, the twenty twenty four All Star Weekend in Indiana, uh, Indianapolis, and um, it wasn't well received. Well received. But the issue here now, um with this in my eyes, is that people don't understand the reasons why this thing is wrong. Like what what's everyone's like, Oh, what's gone wrong? And then they you know, all the boisterous people is like, I'll tell you what's gone wrong da 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 and here's the solution, da 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 and uh I've I've picked this article out just because as more of an example of just um, you know, a more measured take, but um, there's been there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of takes more overt than this, depending on the person, obviously. Um, and I dread to get the opinion or to see the opinions of um, several others, so I haven't. Um, but I have opinions, and I guarantee you that pretty much nobody has uh, in the U.S. American punditry space um, has actually made these conclusions. Um, but let's read the cycle first, and we'll get into my thoughts about it. So this is via Anscape, uh, written by Jesse Washington. It's called How to Fix the NBA All-Star Game. Now, this is for the All-Star Game especially, uh, specifically, um, but, you know, the whole weekend needs to be fixed in some fashion, but we'll we'll get to that. So let's get into the cycle right quick. Okay, this is officially an emergency. <laughs> the NBA All-Star Game has gotten so embarrassing, so useless, so disgustingly non-competitive, we need an intervention. I have solutions and you're going to love them, unless you're an all-star who will be required to break an actual sweater in the game. But first, a recap for the millions of people way smarter than me who chose not to waste their time watching Sunday night. Leading up to this exhibition of entitlement, the main storyline was to search for a way to make the players dot 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 try. Last year's version was all Matador defense and lazy three-pointers. That is the worst basketball game ever played, said one of the all-star head coaches, Michael Malone. Viewership sank to 4.6 million, the lowest in more than 20 years. Ahead of this year's game, the NBA commissioner Adam Silver repeatedly sent a message to his all stars Please, fellas, you have to play to win. Instead, they avoided standing in between the guy with the ball and the hoop. They traded uncontested three after sleep inducing uncontested three. They did whatever you call Luka Doncic's performance, which included staying under the senior citizen speed limit and missing a wide open dunk that high school kids make daily. The final score was an absurd two-one-two-two two, two eleven to one eighty-six. I won't say who won because the whole league lost. It just shows that we didn't go out there and compete like you would want us to. But that is—that's just—that's just what it is. Damien said Afterward, the Bucks scored 39 points, shot 11 for 23 from three, and won MVP. They're lucky there was no IDGAF. Clearly, something has changed. Until the NBA brings in Will Smith's crisis manager, here are my suggestions. Some of them are pretty ridiculous, but since that also describes what the NBA, the All-Star game has become, nothing should be off the table. Losers sit. This is one. So, so we're going to break it down. He's got a few here. Um, some of these I mess with, some of these I don't. But we'll see how it goes. Alright, losers sit. The primal motivation of basketball, and the heart and soul of hoop world, is that, in one way or another, losers get off the court. Let's bring that pickup up vibe to the All-Star game. Divide the All-Stars into four squads of six players each. The losers vote to the Stars, play the whole first quarter. Whatever, whoever loses that quarter gets off the court. And the next squad plays the whole second quarter. Run it back the same... Mm. The, whoever loses that core gets off the court and the next squad plays the whole second quarter. Run it back the same way in the third quarter. At this point, if one team has won three straight, run it back Gets the starters who lost the first quarter. Hoopers, no. There is no better feeling than holding down the court for the whole run. I bet you will start to feel that too. Okay, I'm debating whether to respond to each and then, and then you know, just round up a why I think. Or just go, you know... Just wait until the end. Uh, let's just go to the end. So the next one is put your money up. In the in se- uh, the in season tournament showed that five hundred K priors can motivate millionaires. <sighs> okay, I feel like responding now. <laughs> okay, I've 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 made the bed, let me sleep in it. Both teams played hard in this year's inaugural game and it was super fun to watch. That said most all stars are making forty billion per year. What's an extra two fifty if two fifty? Um, after taxes really gonna do for them. So let's require the All Stars to put up their own money and pay for their roster spot. All stars who are still on rookie deals like Scotty Barnes and Palabanquero this year get a pass. If they don't want to bet on them don't want to bet on themselves, then another guy hoop. Winning team takes home the pot. That's in it's the recipe for competition. Losers fly commercial. <laughs> okay. You lose, you buy a plane ticket and fly home with the rest of us. I'm talking shoes off in the airport security line. Just in for position when your boarding sign is called. The whole nine. I hope they get that got that TSA pre-check. I'm cool with All-Stars flying first class. Unless SSI loses by more than 20, then it's economy plus. Take their toy away. Okay, this is this is just getting... <laughs> I don't know where this is getting. When my kids abuse a privilege, I gave them a few warnings, then took it away. Too many players are treating the All-Star game like a birthright but they also care deeply about the validation of making the team and want to be recognised as the best of the best. If Silver issued an ultimatum that the game will disappear unless players take it seriously, that should improve the effort. If not, having the go without an All-Star game will make players realise where they went wrong, like my son did when his PlayStation disappeared. (sighs) I'm really regretting not talking um, until the end. Bring back the Elam ending. This is the system, developed by college professor Nick Elam in which the game ends when one team reaches a certain score, that guarantees the game will end on a made basket. The All-Star game used this format in 2020 and it worked. And I agree because I think that was episode 65 while I was talking about it. Uh, the one in Chicago. Um all the All-Stars were hoopin' hoopin'. I'm not sure why the NBA stopped using it, but they need to at least try running this back. Reward proficiency. And analytics can provide incentives to play harder and smarter. Add points to the All-Star scoreboard for defensive efficiency true shooting percentage lol stop i'm lying i hate analytics any such solution to the all-star problem should be ignored these nerds should not be allowed to in the conversation unless they can unless they can or once were able to a dunk b make 10 threes in 90 seconds or c guard me one-on-one okay that was a bit of a stupid one to have usa versus the world okay now we're talking we're getting so close to my to my actual solution here. Anyway, um, this is the one: international players on one team, Americans on the other. The USA squad would have to defend the reputation of the nation that invented the game. The world would have something to prove against the originators. As a New York City native, I'm honestly a bit scared of this concept because the starting five of Nikola Jokic, John Bead, Giannis, Kumpa, Doncic, and Shaker Gilgis, Gilgis Alexander might be impossible to beat. But the Americans have a superior depth and can stay in the game uh, with bench play. Everybody would want to watch. And when the pride is online, guys play hard. I'll be the first to admit that none of these solutions are perfect or even necessarily serious. But the All Star game must be saved. The fact that you read th- read this far shows how desperate we have become. Okay, so <coughs> so let's go let's go backwards. So USA versus the world. I am down for this um, potential. But um, the issue is, in my mind, is that it was it has already been done. Um, in what at one point was obviously the rookie sophomore game, and now it's called like the Rising Stars game or whatever. Um, they did do that. They did do USA versus the world. And did you watch Rising Stars game of USA versus the world? And did that make for good basketball? I don't think it did. Um, so that's close to my that's close, really close to my thoughts. But We'll get there reward efficiency let's just skip that because obviously I was stupid waste of words um, bring back the Elam ending. I'm not against that idea um I think that's you know probably worth a good shout to even throw that in um, but doesn't fix everything take their toy away um okay take their toy okay let me let me let me bunch these up so take your toy away losers for like commercial and put your money up and even losers say actually I think all four of them um have this have this ilk of, um, remember that South Park episode where um, uh, the guys are playing, uh, I think it's baseball, right? And they're doing all they can to just lose and not play baseball anymore. I think that's what would happen if if you implemented any of those uh, other things Mr. Washington suggested, uh, any of those solutions. I think players would just go, oh no, we have to sit. Um, okay. I don't think you guys I, and here's the issue. So this is getting let's just move all of those away and get to get to the right solution which is mine. And not even the solution, but just the people aren't getting to the right point of um like baseline reasoning of why this is bad now. Um capitalism. Can't believe it, right? It's actually capitalism, believe it or not, right, ladies and gentlemen. Let me break it down for you. So, I was um I was listening to the right time of Imani Jones and uh, last I think it was last Friday or last Wednesday. And he was talking with Harold Bryant, um, author, and um, they were talking about the All Star Game in an interesting way. And they were so close to talking about it, but they didn't get quite get to it. And the issue is capitalism, right? Um, they mentioned how in the you know seventies eighties right for example right let's just say that seventies and eighties um, the NBA was trying to grow desperately trying to grow that's why Magic and Bird was such a flashpoint in NBA history and is always you know referenced and always lauded as a amazing time for basketball because because of that rivalry um, that actually gave the NBA you know. Re- Impetus to um, to not even have their games on tape delay anymore, for one thing, right? And also, just um, made pop- made it more popular. Um, at that point, the NBA started gaining in popularity and actually became, you know, and ended up becoming the global game it is today. But here is the issue: it is now a global game; it has basically reached critical mass at this point. So, what do NBA players have have when it comes to actually growing the game? It's nothing really. Now, obviously, you know, in terms of capitalism, right? It's a matter of you know, oh, we have to, we have to get bumps in seats for the NBA All Star Game. They really don't. They really don't. Honestly, at this point, and let's be real, the only thing when it comes to the NBA that people care about is the is the playoffs. Once the playoffs come through, everybody who's actually interested is down for it. People don't care about the regular season anymore, barely. Uh, people don't care about All-Star Weekend anymore, because, frankly, the US are um, spoiled, for one thing, but also, for the players, it's a matter of capitalism, they don't need to, they earn too much to do this, this is not, this is not enough of a, a thing to, um, to actually hold on to, they want the, like Jesse said, they, they want the plaudits of being, you know, all-Star, I'm an All-Star, Da-da-da-da. they want that plaudit, but they don't want to play the game, fuck that, they want, they'd want. they rather have the break, that's why Jimmy Butler's chilling, capital C chilling, uh, whenever the All-Star uh, break comes through, because he doesn't want to be an All-Star, he doesn't care about that, he cares about obviously championships, he cares about getting a ring, and all- being an All-Star has nothing to do with that. Um it might care, you might care if you're know like, uh, if you're like um on your rookie deal and uh you know obviously you get you 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 have to get a new contract obviously that really helps that gives you clout that gives you leverage right so they all think about this in a business sense right and then Lebron and them uh at that point think about it as a legacy thing right um it's it's all it's all about money um, and when somebody said, I think it was Brian Winters who said, um, give them money. No, no, don't give millionaires more money. Sorry, that's just not how I'm, I'm not fucking with that at all. Just don't give them money. Don't give them money. They don't need more money, right? They're not going <laughs> to be, this isn't, to give them more money just to play basketball is, just, I mean, how soulless do you want to make this? Let's be real. How soulless do you really want to make this? to just give these players a million just so they actually play and what happens if they don't give them more money more money more money what happens you're just going to give them five million each to actually play a game it doesn't make sense um so what is my solution all right that's the that's the baseline right it is capitalism capitalism killed it they don't they they have this risk of reward uh, thing in their brain and most of the time it's not worth the risk Playing an all-star game is not worth the risk, or playing it properly is not worth the risk. They're not going to do it. They don't care that much, right? You lot are still going to either you're either going to watch or you're not going to watch, but you're going to be there for the playoffs regardless. Um, to have these people bitch and moan about the all-star weekend for a couple of weeks is fine. They go home, they have their break, and they, re- they then they recharge. That's all they want. They don't care about any of this shit. Um, so my solution is. And this is very convoluted, I don't know how logistically this could happen, um, but I think it should be NBA, play, NBA All-Stars versus, like, you know, a kind of like a rest-of-the-world thing, or maybe go against different leagues, right? Bring in the EuroLeague, bring in the whatever the Australian one is, bring those people in, get those people on a flight, get their teams on a flight, and let's have some fucking games, you know what I mean? Get, like, EuroLeague All-Stars, that'll be sick. Euroleague versus NBA. Oh, that then—that's how I imagine. If they don't play for that, then shit. What are we doing here? Well, then we might as well actually just bin the All Star Game. That's the—that's the only solution I have. personally, I don't even know if it'll work. But that's the extreme solution. I feel like that should—that should happen. Give that an Elam ending as well, just in case, just to you know, just to shore it up. But um, yeah, I think that is. I think that is the case. I think that's what should happen. If they don't want to play that, then shit, don't play the all star game anymore. If if they don't do that, if they can't get up to beat Euroleague, a Euroleague all star team, then shit, what are we doing here? What what's the competition? Doesn't matter anymore. And then we can actually know for sure if this is completely soulless or not. Um, you know, they, they all this hoop talk. doesn't really. Vibe of me anymore, like you lot ain't hoopers anymore, you're businessmen, and that's fine. You lot of professionals, you lot are lot of professional basketball players. This is the this is why this is why, like, um, street ballers don't end up in the NBA, apart from maybe like Ray for Alston, I think is the only uh outlier. Um, this is why street ballers don't go into the league because they enjoy the game for what it is, right? And they enjoy you know just the pageantry and the the showmanship of, um, you know, streetball and playing basketball, but professionals, they have to play every day regardless if they actually want to play basketball or not. Did I, did I hear that? Yeah, let me repeat it again. They play professional basketball and they have to play it regardless if they actually want to play basketball that day or not. They have to train whether they actually want to train or not. Do you see how it works? It's a job. It is a job for them. Don't get it twisted. They might love the game. They might have had a love for the game at some point. But at some point, clearly down the line, it gets to the point where you know you just have to make um, just have to make decisions to not care. And All Star Game is the easiest one for them to just not care about. They will care about the playoffs, of course, because you know what we're doing here. If we ain't trying to get rings, right? But All Star Game. No, no, they're not here for that. They're not here for that anymore. They don't need to grow the game, quote unquote, like you know, Magic and Bird had to do in the '70s, or um, Jordan and the Pistons had to do in the '80s and '90s. They didn't have to. They didn't have to grow the game. The game has grown. People know the names. People are here for this. Um, uh, you know, they support their teams. They like their players. Right? <coughs> it's a global game. To have an All Star Game means nothing. So, yeah. I could have um, gone into the whole weekend itself and how shit it is. Um, I don't think you can save the dunk contest if people ain't interested in dunking anymore. Then that's fine. This is what it is. A three-point contest is great. I feel like they should bring WNBA players into it more, or more in the same way they did with Sabrina versus Steph. Um, skills is the skills challenge. <laughs> Dude, I don't know how to save that. But yeah, man, there's there's a there's an aura about the All-Star game <coughs> that I can just that I'm just seen it differently from these pundits and I don't think they understand like yeah just capitalism ruined it <laughs> capitalism ruined it Like, they, they've they reached the point where they're fine they don't want to play if they don't want to play don't blink and play the game but then again don't also bitch and moan about the fact that the, the all star game shit stop watching it <laughs> you ever thought about that you ever thought about not watching it I, gu- I guarantee you they'll respond if you lot stop watching it so, go ahead and just stop watching it. Otherwise, quit bitching, quit mo- quit moaning. And please understand, As the final point. Please understand. The, the nostalgia has really gotten you a lot. There was... Apart from the... Apart from what I mentioned in the 70s and 80s in terms of trying to grow the game. There hasn't been many, like, you know, all-star games where they actually, you know, try, try. Okay? Let's not get it twisted. Please, let's not let's not push that narrative for yet another year going like these these cats don't play hard they haven't played hard in 20 years let's just be honest Okay, let's hop into uh, photography, and this is all about a man called Saul Leiter. Um, if you haven't heard of him, um, well, you will during this uh, particular story. But when um, you when you get into you know photography in general, like I have, obviously in the past couple of years, um, you start to just get the same names popping up. It's like um, you know Leiter, Meyerowitz, um, you know Ansel Adams, uh, Bresson. You know just notable names right and um you know you, I, I constantly get you know video suggestions on YouTube, it's like oh about this uh, check out this photographer how how this talk you know video essays on oh this photographer was great for this and the the you know blank space photographer this the this photographer the insert applaud it here photographer and um you know Saul Leiter is one that comes up a lot and uh, i saw this article and i thought it'd be interesting to talk about so, with that said, let's jump right in. This is called The Photographer Who Changed the Way the World Saw New York, written by Christian House via CNN Style. So, let's jump right in. Saul Lighter had a thing for umbrellas. They pepper his mid-century photographs of New York popping up over years of work. Pink umbrellas, red umbrellas, yellow umbrellas. Their owners remain hidden underneath, dry and out of sight, upstage by their vivid canopies. In Saul Lighter, An Unfinished Word... A joyous new retrospective on view at MK Gallery in Milton Keynes, England. Oh, really? Is it Milton Keynes? Jeez. Well, I don't know if I can track there, but that'll be kind of cool to see. Uh, These umbrellas sing out from the walls, as do orange shop signs, scarlet curtains, and the custard dashes of cabs. Leiter, who died in 2013, is now recognised as one of the great colour photographers of the 20th century, a pioneer who embraced and experimented with colour slide film, where most professional photographers were still wedded to monochrome negatives. Against muted Manhattan backdrops of concrete, stone and smoke stacks, he focused on the blinking neon and candy-striped uh, candy barber signs. Leiter's abstracted shots of New York seemed radical, Yet they are true to how we all see the streets, fragmented by traffic, building facades, uh, doorways, angles, and crowds. By embracing that jumbled naturalistic viewpoint, Leiter could create a collage within a single frame, a snap and grab of all the urban elements glanced on the fly. Into these cut-up compositions we see pedestrians and policemen, stall workers, dog walkers, and construction workers, but not specific characters, more as notes on a musical score. Leiter's photographs are often interrupted, confused or ornamented, and sometimes all freeing, by the whims of weather and atmospheric effects. Figures are seen through veils of condensation or snow, taxis barrel and blur through the rain, a traffic light punctuates a blizzard. A window window covered in raindrops interests me more than a photograph of a famous person, he remarked in the 2013 documentary In No Great Hurry, 13 13 Lessons in Life with Saul Leiter. Leiter was not supposed to ha- have been a photographer. He was born in 1923 into a strictly observant Jewish family in Pittsburgh and was ex- expected to become a rabbi like his father, a Talmud scholar. That all changed in 1946 when Saul caught a train to New York. He was 23 and wanted to be a painter. He would remain estranged from his father for most of his adult life. It was like friendship with the photojournalist W. Eugene Smith that led him to consider photography. Although he continued to paint, some of his works on paper and canvases are on view in Milton Keynes. Abstract and figurative paintings, influenced by the post-impressionists and Japanese printmakers such as Hokusai, and other artists who loved the rain, while Leiter saw parallels between the mediums he thought paintings were uh, were made and photographs were found. His private now celebrated sidewalk photographs were not what supported him. From the late 1950s to the late 1980s, he shot fashion pictures for periodicals such as Queen and British Vogue, enjoying much of the work but sometimes finding himself constrained by briefs from picture desks. I once said to the editor of a magazine that a drawing by Bonnard meant more to me than a whole year of Harper's Bazaar, he recalled. She looked at me in complete horror. He was not just a photographer, he was not just a painter, he was a poet, said the exhibition's curator Anne Morin. Indeed, Leiter's unconventional handling of a camera mirrored the literary experimentation of his contemporaries Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. His photographs were formed from out-of-date film stock, and uh, strange exposures, erratic focus, and crazy perspectives. He even enhanced some of his prints with gouache, is that you say? G-O-U-A-C-H-E, gouache, and watercolours to create hybrid photo paintings. Rather than than take a chronological journey through Leiter's career, the MK exhibition immerses visitors in his philosophy of seeking beauty in the everyday by combining, combining periods, mediums, and subject matter together. His sensibility, a feeling for lively serendipity, shines through all of it. The show, which comes in the wake of a monumental new book, Saul Leiter, the centennial retrospective, is a box of delights and surprises. His early black and white prints, especially his portraits of women, are close-cropped and sensitively handled uh, little gems, tiny windows on friendships. While a series of nudes reveal the talent for capturing subtle and sweet intimacies, especially when framing his longtime lover and muse, uh, Soam's Bantry, his citrus-hued paintings illustrate his ongoing adventures with the brush. But it is his colour photography... Out on the bustling blocks, he left some 40,000 slides, that is his most distinctive body of work. With the large planes of obfuscation, the result of a shop awning or a passerby, his photographs echoed the canvases of the Abstract Expressionists, some of whom Lighter knew personally. He lived for a time on 10th Street at the heart of the scene. Similarly, he was in the orbit of the New, School of Photograph- New York School of Photographers, a loosely connected group that included Diane Arbus and Robert Frank, but he always remained a character apart, never quite a member of any movement. He never really settled into society, says Morrow. Uh, Leiter recognized this but did not see it as a failure. I have succeeded in not being famous, he observed. What he did, instead, was retain an unapologetic and unwavering eye for the less obvious. As his weary lab assistant once remarked, not umbrellas again. <coughs> Alright, um, I'm down to get the book. I can imagine it being co- costing a fucking fortune. I don't see myself trekking to Milton Keynes anytime time soon, um, but you never know. Um, 60 quid. Ooh, oh, that's a chunky bit of book. That's a chunky bit of book. But I feel like to have like a definitive piece of work from somebody of Soul Lighter's um, uh, ilk um, is very freaking uh, interesting. Ooh, I might I might put that on the wish list. See if um, see if I can get that for like a birthday present or something. Because that'll be kind of cool. And uh, considering it has a good, it um, gives <gasps> me a good amount of writing on it. It's pretty solid. Um, but yeah, where's this? Um, let me see where the I see I see one of the MK gallery saying on this front. Let me see how. Uh, there you go. From the second till the second of June. Okay, so I have time. Um, five uh, adults, eleven fifty. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty solid. Hmm, might be worth a shout. This I don't even know how to get to Milton Kings. To be fair, <laughs> um, I've never been to Bill Kings. Actually, I, have I been to Milk Kings? I might have been to Milk Kings. But um, yeah, so it's not. It's not a place I actively look out for. I think the funny, the ironic thing is, I said to somebody the other day that I'm never. I'm not trying to get to Milton Keynes anytime soon, um, so that's kind of hilarious um, that that is the case. But yeah, it's um yeah it's it's not it's not it's not as far away as I think. Um, it's like, you know just just in just near the Midlands, you know what I mean? Just like on that on that cusp of Midlands to South, right? You know what I mean? Just above Oxford, just below Cambridge, kind of kind of a anyway. I don't know why I'm, you can look up Milton Keynes for yourselves. But yeah, um yeah Saul nice isn't fascinating dude um, i like that i like that quote about fame at the end that's really fascinating i i i take to that very well um but yeah he's, he's he has an interest in um his ph- photography does fascinate me uh, more than his paintings obviously right but um the fact that he was so multifaceted is you know sick and actually very respectable that um you know that he had so much um so much art to give right um tens of thousands of slides of fi- film slides and uh yeah that'll be that'll be a very interesting um book to get definitely. I'm definitely if I'm if I'm doing one or the other, it's probably the book um over the exhibition itself. that uh, just requires me trekking the mountain Keynes and probably cost more um to actually do in terms of travel. Um but yeah, you know. Shout out to Salt Lighter man. If you haven't if you guys haven't just uh, I mean there's plenty of YouTube essays about him um, on YouTube, so if you want to get into that, feel free. But um, yeah, there's some really good, uh, just technical elements that he um, that he uh, kind of pioneered in some ways, right? And um, a lot of people f- struggle to do because a lot of them are, you know, elements that are either just not done anymore. Obviously, you know, digital cameras are the thing now. But um, even when it comes to film photographers, I don't know if they have the balls to actually <laughs> to actually do photography in that fashion. Um, so, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a cool, it's a fascinating uh, artistic life, for sure. Fascinating, for sure. Okay, let's get into our music segments. Uh, We've got two for the end of the episode, for the second half. Um, this is one that I had saved um, for a while um, by The Guardian, and uh, I actually don't think I got to it, so I thought, why not get into it? Um, so this is uh, by D- uh, Daniel Dylan Ray, um, and it's called Music it Shouted Out Than the Racism, the pioneering black nightclub born in far, ri- <laughs> far right east London. Uh, so it's dropped by him. In 1983, Town in the borough of Newham in East London returned the highest number of votes for the national front in the country. A year later, the 16-year-old black boy Eustace Price was murdered during a confrontra- confrontation with racists in the area. By 1986, Newham registered the UK's highest number of racist attacks. It was a no-go area for black people, said Zach, then manager of London Weekend Radio LWR. People in cars would be shouting obscenities and calling you the M-word. It was a hostile environment. Despite this, uh, between 1982 and '86, black people from all across London drove to Canningtown in their thousands to dance all night in an underground sweatbox to soul, jazz funk, reggae, groove, hip-hop and reggae. Benleys was a club in an old pub beneath an underpass. Unglamorous perhaps, but for those four years, it became a bustling go-to destination. As part of Newham Heritage Month, Community Interest Company Rendezvous Projects has been digging into the influential history to produce a new booklet and podcast on the club. It was like our paradise garage, says resident uh, DJ Lyndon C, uh, comparing it to the revered New York club. It had a huge sound system in there that gave it this underground warehouse feel, even though it had this bingo looking carpet. Opened by the white brothers Mark and Jack Homer with the intention of turning the old rock pub into a soul club, Bentley's was unlike most other nice spots at the time in that it didn't have a racist door policy that limited who could enter. A lot of places didn't want black people in their clubs, says Mark, but I loved the music and could see an opening for good business. With Froggy as the resident DJ, Bentley soon built up an envi- enviable roster, including C, Neil Charles, and supremely talented young guy called Derek B who ran a pumping Saturday party that would attract the likes of Norman Jay and Trevor Nelson. LWR had a live residency, pulling in performances from acts such as Five Star, Light of the World, Loose Ends, Jocelyn Brown, and Edwin Starr. Despite its tough surroundings, it was a place for people to sparkle. It was like going to Ascot, said GJ and presenter Elaine Smith. You dress special. People would even clean their cars especially for it, resulting in a sea of glistening motors lining the streets. While the room could legally hold uh, 600, it would often pack in double that, with thousands more regularly turning up. On the busiest occasions, the organizers emptied the car park and set up a stack of speakers to create an outdoor overflow dance floor. It was like a big family party, says Homer. My doorman's mother-in-law would be upstairs making curry go for everyone. Everyone recalls a mixed crowd that drew no troublemakers. I didn't see any racism, says Smith. What I saw was a movement of people that came together to party, meet one another, and hear music. It was a real melting pot of cultures where music shouted louder than racism. LWR helped spread the Bendy's gospel. When the station took up residency there in 1984, its reach was huge. We knew from Department of Trade and Industry that figures uh, figures that we had listeners in the Minions a week, said Zach. Smith was the breakfast presenter at the time. Our direct competition was Capital and the Beeb, she says, but the advantage we had was, is that we had the streets. Lyndon C. echoes this. You'd walk down the street and hear LWR in every car, clothes shop, market, and hairdresser, he says. He was instrumental in taking bendies to the masses. During the LWR residency, the DJs played freshly imported records and organised live broadcasts that saw a club explode. Our event's called Roadblocks, access. It was so gridlocked that the police had to ask us to help them clear the cars off the flyover and surrounding roads. It was like the whole of London had come to bend these. However, the good times came to an abrupt end. On the, uh, on the 80, 1986 August bank holiday weekend, more than 160 officers descended on the club in the largest police raid in Newham's history and shut it down with a media effect. The raid was terrifying, says Homer. An articulated lorry pulled up and all the police jumped out the back with guns. They came flying in like lunatics, completely over the top. The police were responding to a tip off that the club was being used for firearm storage. No guns were found, but some cannabis and knives were seized. The new monitoring project criticised the police action as heavy-handed and as a provocative gesture towards black people. At the time, Scotland Yard said such criticisms didn't merit a response, which, in hindsight, um, is very funny, considering uh, where you know police are being, you know, considered institutionally racist um, by several reports and even, excuse me, and even confirmed. Um, confirmed by, um, you know, um, black police officers um, now in the Met, so that's very hilarious that... Oh, God, can can, can merit such a response? How dare you? How could, how could you even possibly mean that? Outstanding, anyway. Today, Homer bluntly describes the motivations as racist and suggests that the previous year's Broadwater Farm riot was still fresh in police minds. You had a thousand black people there, and they thought, if this kicks off, we're fucked, he says. Homer also wonders whether, given that they were located in an area ripe for development, they were seen as standing in the way of progress. It was in an upcoming area of the Docklands, and who wants a black club there, he adds. In Fac- feels similarly. Similar- similarly, 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 <laughs> that's a gyro one. Uh, there was never any trouble there, he says. It was just this club has black people in attendance, and we don't want that. It was a sour and heartbreaking end for Homer, who felt too downbeat to risk starting up again. With the legacy and longevity of fellow pirate, uh, fellow pirate radio station Kiss FM eventually outweighing LWR, along with narrow retellings of club history often excluding black stories, while heavily framing the late 1980s as a ground zero, Benzie's has until now remained absent from much of the documented history of UK club culture. Nevertheless, it remains a special place for those who were in its grip. Bentley was a breakthrough," said Zach. "It was so harmonious; it was just beautiful to behold." Okay, so the podcast, um, "The All Roads Lead to Bentleys," um, has a limited edition booklet and a podcast. So I might give that podcast a spin. I don't know what the book is about, but um, book is saying. But yeah, I think um, I might I might look up that podcast just to see what see what's what. Um, and yeah, man, that's a story I've been holding on to for since July last year. Didn't even realize it. Um, but yeah, it's a real banger, uh, just a story to tell, and uh, I was, as I was reading it, I was like, how's this not a film yet? Um, which actually very, very, <laughs> very succinctly, uh, brings me to the final topic for this episode. finish off with a story I've been wanting to tell since uh, two Sundays ago now. Um, I went to Genesis Cinema um, to see a film called Getting It Back, the story of uh, Simande. And um, I've been infatuated with the story ever since. And the music is amazing. Talked about it on Digging in Digits this week as well, if you want to go spin. Um, And yeah, I just wanted to really get into it um, somehow, some way. So I found this interview uh, via News written by Sean Curran, and it's called The Story of the Best British Band You've Never Heard Of. And, uh, yeah, let's jump right into it. When Samande uh, split up in 1975, Britain barely noticed. The band had enjoyed some success in America, where they had tall stadiums with Al Green, and made the chance with their socially conscious blend of funk, soul, reggae, jazz, rock, and calypso, rhythmic, um, uplifting, wholly original. But back home, there had been nothing like the same recognition. The six original members of Samande has moved to Britain from the Caribbean as children as part of the Windrush generation. Singing about black identity, they met in the same systemic obstacles, they met the same systemic obstacles as many black Britons in the racially divisive 1970s. For Samande uh, there was next to no radio play, nor TV appearances, no huge tours, nor major label deals. We were very much marginalized as guitarist and co-songwriter Patrick Patterson now In culture, uh, black people weren't supposed to have a presence that counted, and the music was the same. The major exposure wasn't available to us, uh, because of how society saw us. We weren't meant to have significant ability, and that activity to keep us in our place justified disadvantaging us. It was purposeful, in my view. And so, their free albums from the early 1970s slipped quietly into obscurity. As BBC Six music DJ Craig Charles put it, Simande were, quote, the black British supergroup that never happened, unquote. That really should have been the end of the story. But then something strange and quite remarkable began to happen. Simande's music took on the unlikeliest of second acts, discovered from the late 1970s onwards by vinyl-obsessed crate diggers, disco DJs, and early hip-hoppers. Songs like Dove and Bra filled New York dance floors and street parties. The first hip-hop generation took them to their hearts. By the 1990s, their music had been sampled by De La Soul, Wu-Tang Clan, Fuji's. Spike Lee used their music in two of his films. It means that Samante could well be the best band you think you've never heard. Of, uh, never heard. Uh, they are one of the most sampled black British acts of all time. An excellent new documentary by Tim McKenzie-Smith, getting it back, the story of Samande, fleshes out the detail for how Samante groundbreaking music uh, collided with the black british experience in the late 70s and how their music lived on against the odds it's about more than music Patterson says it's about so- social interactions about economic things it's about race it's about all sorts of things Patterson is sitting beside bassist and fellow songwriter steve scipio at the bfi south bank they are generous warm company cheerful but deeply serious clearly reveling in the opportunity to have their story not just heard but understood it began in Guyana. Other members of Samande came from Jamaica and St. Vincent before they moved to Balham, South London. Living on the same street and becoming best friends. Scipio talks of the culture shock of arriving in the UK at age 13. Patterson was 8. Reflecting on it now, it was quite a traumatic experience for me actually. They both talk about how the UK school system failed them. Scipio was more advanced educationally than his new classmates. The system in Guyana arranged classes not by age but by ability. He was held back while others caught up, leaving him disillusioned. There was a darker side to that. Scipio says, "This is supposed to be the mother country, and if children are coming from a colony, me, and are more advanced academically than children in the UK, they won't, excuse me, want to recognise that because you're the colony. You're supposed to be inferior." The pair paint a stark picture of the Windrush generation's struggle for acceptance, with institutional barriers and racial tensions running high. The film does a fine job of exposing prevailing racist attitudes fuelled by the rise of the National Front in the 1970s. Social integration proved difficult. For some, jobs and housing were hard to come by, Patterson notes. Scipio says many came with, quote, with intention of working, saving, and going back to the Caribbean, but got trapped in the system, unquote. He says many were assigned to mental mental institutions, quote, when what they were experiencing was really a depression with the system that they were being forced to operate in, unquote. Scipio says this was particularly cruel given many were encouraged by the British state to come in the first place to help rebuild the country after the Second World War. We didn't get access, so we had to provide for ourselves, Patterson says. We had our own community, and we very much created our own life. We interacted, of course, but I'm really talking about being self-supporting and not having to delve into the wider English community for sustenance or what have you. The pair took the same approach to music as traditional routes were unavailable. We sidestepped and built our own thing, Patterson says. The pair began a, in, in a jazz quarter uh, called Meter before Simande evolved in Brixton. With Simande they crafted the music they wanted to hear, but also the world they wished to see, reflecting the black struggle with a message of peace, peace love and community. The band's symbol was a dove to convey togetherness. Our intention was to create original individual music that reflected our circumstances and aspirations, Patterson says. But despite the music's undoubted brilliance, they made little headway in the UK, never moving beyond the club circuit. They recall some gigs in northern working men's clubs being a challenge. Crowds were not hostile, just disinterested, skippy laughs. Yet in America, their self-titled debut album attracted attention with their track, The Message, becoming a hit on the radio. Suddenly, thanks to contacts via their sole champion, record producer John Schroeder, who had overheard them rehearse in Soho, they were performing to 30,000 people with Al Green. Samantha then became the first black British band to play the legendary Apollo Theatre in Harlem. Paterson says this might be the most significant aspects of Samande's story, considering their impact as part of the Beatles-led invasion of America. In a sense, we were part of that invasion. We at the tail end of that, but black music was involved in it too. But their return home was back to square one. They recognised Samande weren't an overly a commercial proposition. We didn't want to do pop music or try and copy what the market wanted, Paterson says. But this was still music and a message. They should have found an audience, and the white gatekeepers who controlled the industry kept them at bay. They point out it wasn't just Simande. Other black groups, such as Ghanaian British Afro-rock act Ossibisa, Osibia- Os- were treated similarly. Gotta go, 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 go spin that now. <laughs> uh, this contrasted uh, with black American acts, uh, uh, artists of the era. James Brown, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, who became massive stars in Britain. People didn't have a problem with black American artists coming over here, Scipio says. Because not only could they be exploited, they weren't part of the community. They're not politically involved to have an impact on the political system here. Uh, Whereas the homegrown musicians might be espousing political ideas in terms of black and proud and that kind of thing, which would be uh, anathema to uh, political establishment at the time. I must say it has been disheartening to consistently meet a glass ceiling. It uh, It was disheartening in one regard, Patterson says but it also enables us to reconfirm for ourselves that there's dignity in what we do. It would not have been right for us to go back into the working men's clubs after what we achieved in America. The band took a break and its members moved on. As if to prove their point about the education system, both Patterson and Scipio retrained as lawyers. Simultaneously, unbeknown to them, Simande's music was turning on a new generation, forming the foundations of hip-hop and house music. They got an inkling in the late 1980s, I really found out through my older children who were listening to that kind of music at the time, Scipio says. In the film, a host of DJs and MCs, including Norman Jay and Jazzy B, talk excitedly about Simande's music uh, had on them, demonstrating how it uh, transformed dance floors and parties across the world. What was that like to watch? It was quite an emotional thing, Patterson says. The sampling has been fantastic for us, Scipio adds. It's revitalised the music. Simande's eventually uh, reformed in 2014, Back by genuinely popular uh, demand 40 years after their split. The break was never meant to be that long, Patterson loves. They now enjoy a multicultural audience across generations. I wonder if, given the circumstances they faced in the 1970s, they feel vindication. I don't think of it in those terms, you know, Patterson says. I'm very happy for the appreciation of our music, Scipio adds. "The music was not frivolous. And to see people actually subscribing to the idea now is totally worth it. Alright, so... But I said, I highly recommend you guys go see Getting It Back, The Story of Simande, um, uh, out in the select cinemas, um, just uh, uh, give Kush Cinema a follow um, on certain platforms, um, they, they've they been uh, guessing the film up, uh, rightly so, um, I think they're obviously part of distribution, but yeah, you get what I mean, and um, yeah, just, uh, if you haven't listened to the music, please go listen to the music, I can't, I can't encourage you to do it any more than I than I can do just by saying it please, please give it a listen. Um if you respect my impeccable taste, uh, which I do, um please give this a listen. Just please give at least a debut a listen. So I forty something minutes it'll be it'll be it'll be there and gone before you know it. Um, it's a fascinating album. Um, it's a fascinating listen. And um a fascinating story man. Just uh how <sighs> Just just watching people like not try to conform, um, I think is the thing that really sticks to me the most, um, and I feel very akin to. Um I feel like I'm at a point personally, and yes, I'm making this about me now, where I'm not I'm not stressing. I'm not stressing about, you know, making it quite quite right you know 10 years ago i definitely was Def- 10 years ago i really wanted it 10 years ago and i still want it in some ways right i want to i want it but i want it in a different way i want it in the case of you know putting my art out there and putting you know other people's art out there um i want it in a very community based way i want it in a i want it in a form that i can enjoy it with other people and yeah, I but before that it was kind of just, you know, solo in my mind and just like I want to be, you know, known as this person. And, you know, I don't really care about being known at this point, right? I just want to have this thing that I have in my head, right? Um and but I'm not really I'm again, I'm not stressing having to if it, if it requires me to conform in some fashion in some fashions, of which I can't be asked to, you know, try and lay out every single one for you, but just know there are a few. I don't want to do that, right? And I love how Simande just, you know, did their albums, and they enjoyed it, and they found, they had that taste of success, they did that, they did that, they found it, right? But then they got, they came home, and they weren't given the same reception, because the system was shit, the system didn't know what to do with them. The system was like, "Well, you're not doing reggae, so why do? We, what else? Do we, what else could you possibly be here for?" And you know, gatekeeping is a genuine thing. I keep saying to, I keep saying, you know, um, over the years that you know, gatekeeping in some fashion is a great thing, um, but not in this case. Not in the case of you know, white DJs just not fucking with this music, like, that's just, that's just ignorant, are you even into music at that point, um, obviously, you know, people have their tastes, and people have their, uh, um, ha- people have their spaces that they make out, like, you know, I'm, I'm the hip-hop DJ, or I'm the house DJ, right, everyone does that, everyone has their, um, uh, makes their, makes their own boxes, right, I think, as DJs, but in this case, it was clearly just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, fuck your shit. It's not pop, so why do we care? It's not reggae, so why do we care? Um, they barely cared about reggae. Um, so, how do you think they're going to do about this? You know, fucking fusion group now, he's all black, by the way. You know, that's that's a, that's another point to make. Um, obviously, the likes of UB40 and the specials are, you know, mixed groups. So I think that's a very important uh, distinction to make. Um, but yeah, to just to just to see these guys um receive flowers now um is so vindicating and i'm here i'm here for that i'm really really here for that and uh yeah they've immediately risen up to top of the list of um artists i want to see live um i need to make that pilgrimage somehow um so yeah when that, whenever that happens i'll keep you posted but until then i'll just listen to the music and with that said ladies and gentlemen from the 5vpn, i been Charlie Taylor, and this has been most good. Intro music was Too Much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for a bit of use. You can find both links in the full show notes, as well as Friend of 5 e High. Thanks to Charismatic for the interlude. Uh, you can find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall try and do the same. Until next time, take it easy. ladies and gentlemen.